Please take your copies of the Word of God and turn to Romans chapter 8. The book of Romans and chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be copies in the pew in front of you. Feel free to utilize those. If you don't own a Bible, uh, feel free to take that home with you. That is our gift to you. Please turn to the sixth book of the New Testament, Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 8. Please follow along as I read Romans 8, verses 28 through 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, with the words of this passage freshly in our minds, and with the words of the song we just sang, we come to you now through Christ to understand and comprehend, to receive and to know the love of God shown to us in Christ Jesus. Father, we do come out of depths of ruin untold. We want to come inside to the peace of your sheltering fold that ever your glorious face we may behold. Through Jesus we come to thee. Help us now in these moments as we consider your word. Come to us on the wings of preaching. Please speak to us. Father, we pray that your spirit would so move in us that our hearts would be laid bare to you, for you to apply whatever it is you wish to apply to our hearts in the ministry of the Word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These two verses, Romans 8, 29 and 30, uh, particularly the five verbs for new, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, form what has come to be known as the golden chain of salvation. I wonder if you've ever heard that expression before, the golden chain of salvation that comes from this passage. And the idea is that each of these actions of God on behalf of sinners, particularly His elect people, each one is like a link in the chain, and the chain holds together. You have all the links in the chain. That's why it's called the golden chain of salvation. If you have one of these realities, if God has engaged in one of these activities on the behalf of your poor soul, then all of them follow. They all hold together. To have one is to have all five. For those He foreknew, He also predestined. For all those whom He predestined, He also called. For all those whom He called, He also justified. For all those whom He justified, He also glorified. It's a chain. They all hold together. And it's a golden chain because it's wonderful. It's a golden chain because the affairs of the salvation of our souls from our sins and wrath forever and ever are bound up in these things being accomplished on our behalf by none other than God Himself. And in my Christian experience, in my own spiritual life, and in interacting with brothers and sisters in this church and in other churches, uh, I found that there are a few verses in the Bible uh, more suited to bring encouragement and help to needy Christians who need to be assured with the certainty that they are, in fact, loved by God. Uh, you just wonder how many sermons have been preached on these two verses, how many books have been written, how many commentaries, uh, whole books that we could find that just take up uh, these two verses. Uh, they have captivated the minds of great preachers and theologians like uh, St. Augustine or uh, John Calvin or Charles Hodge or Charles Spurgeon or Martin Lloyd-Jones all have substantial books or discourses on these verses and particularly the five verbs that form this golden chain. Entire books written on just two small verses. Why do they receive so much attention? I think it is because they are filled with so much comfort and help and encouragement for Christians. And I admit my selection of this text this morning, we're out of our normal series of sermons. That series came to a conclusion last week, our series in Colossians. Next few weeks will be topical sermons out of particular texts that I've selected. And I admit my selection of this text this morning is somewhat selfish. Uh, so, I've been out of the pulpit the last two Sundays. Uh, Jen and I were able to uh, get away for some vacation. And in preparation for that time away, I knew that uh, we were going to leave the kids behind. I was going to have some time uh, to myself, uh, more than I normally have. And I anticipated uh, mornings where I would be alone, opportunities to go on long walks, have extended devotions. And one of the things I prayed in anticipation of that time, and while we were away, uh, is that I ask God that He would help me to reach greater assurance of my own salvation, uh, greater confidence that I am in fact a child of God, and that my sins actually have been forgiven, and that there is no longer any charge that stands against me as far as God is concerned. And in God's great mercy, His abundant mercy, He brought this text to me in wonderful ways. And so I'd like to preach this text. John Bunyan uh, once said that he endeavored to preach what he felt, uh, what he earnestly 
did feel, and this is what I feel. So it's somewhat selfish, my selection on this text, but maybe not selfish, uh, because maybe there are some here uh, who also need to be encouraged uh, to a greater level of confidence and assurance and certainty that they are in fact loved by God, that their sins actually have been forgiven, and that there is no spirit under heaven that can separate you from the love of God without incurring great blasphemy against the Lord. No charge that could stand against God's elect. So I'm going to expound verses 29 and 30, and then I'm going to briefly survey Paul's response to these things by way of application in verses 31 and 30, or 31 through 39, excuse me. We're breaking into the middle of a very tight argument. I'm not going to provide that context in that argument. Read the book of Romans this week to get the context for this. I think these verses in some ways stand alone as a kind of epitome text. Uh, I'll just highlight before giving you my headings, uh, notice in this passage, verses 29 and 30, that God is the actor. This is entirely and exclusively about what God has done. Uh, we come up in this passage, we who are the Lord's people, but when we come up, it's talking about the action of God exerted upon us and done within us. So every reference to us in this passage, friends, God's elect people, is in what's called the accusative case. Now, we have some very smart kids who study like Latin and Greek, and they're going to rule the world one day. You kids know what the accusative case is? You know how it goes nominative, genitive, dative, I think accusative, and then oblative? What's in the accusative case? That's where you have the direct object, right? Okay, we're in the accusative case in this passage. We are the object of all these things that God has done. God's the subject. God's the actor. God's the one who initiates uh, these things that we're going to consider in this passage. So I have five points. Could not be easier to follow. Point number one, foreknown. Point number two, predestined. Point number three, called. Point number four, justified. Point number five, glorified. These are the things God does for His elect people. Point number one, foreknown. Verse 39, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. What does the word foreknow mean in this passage? This word is used in a number of other places in the Bible. What does it mean that the Lord foreknew us? Well, let's do a little deconstruction. Let me tell you decidedly what it does not mean. Uh, we might speak of someone knowing the future, like one of us knowing the future. Of course, none of us do know the future. But there have been people at different times who profess to be able to be seers of some kind or to look into a crystal ball, and they might say, I know the future. I've foreknown the future. I've looked ahead, and I, I could see events. I know what's going to happen. I've, I've read your horoscope. I've looked at the tea leaves. Or I've read the lines in your hand. You know the sorts of things I'm talking about. And I know what's going to come into the future. Okay, that's not at all the way this word is being used here. When it says that God foreknew certain people, when he foreknew does not mean that he looked down the corridors of time at typical events that were out of his control that he just sort of predicted. He could tell, okay, this is what's going to happen, and therefore I'm going to align my actions as God with these events that I see are going to take place in the future. So I foresee that John is going to have faith. Well, then I'll predestine him. That's what I'll do because I see that's what's taking place. That's not at all what the word means. Uh, the word means to know beforehand to know beforehand. And, and, and even in our own vocabulary, you could see how this might work. If I said to you uh, today, I know that in the future, I know that after this service, I'm going to get in my car, I'm going to drive home, and I'm going to eat a sandwich. I know that. Well, how do I know that? I don't know that because I've looked into the future, or because I have a crystal ball, or I've looked down the corridors of time, and I see, ah, a sandwich is in my future. That's not how it works. I plan on having a sandwich today. 
I plan on getting in my car, I've determined that I will go home, and I will eat a sandwich. My will will dictate what actions take place in the future, right? In a similar way, this is how it works with God's foreknowledge. Everything that comes to pass happens at God's decree. God decrees what will happen in the future, and on that basis He knows what will happen in the future. That's how foreknowledge works with respect to God. It's not Him being subject to future events out of His control. It's Him decreeing future events, and those events being in line with His will, His decretive will, what He ordains will come to pass. But this word foreknow used in this passage is not just speaking of God's foreknowledge of events, it's speaking of God's foreknowledge of people. It's not him just saying that this or that's going to come to pass. It's saying he knew beforehand a certain body of people. He knew them beforehand, presumably before they were born, presumably before the foundations of the world. He knew them. And this knowledge is not just like he knew facts about them. It's a, it's a, a knowledge of love, a saving knowledge, a knowledge of relationship that, that brings them into relationship. It might be helpful to think of Adam knowing his wife. That's not just he knew her, her profile. He knew her relationally, right? This is God knowing us in a saving way, in a loving way, before we were ever born. God took saving knowledge of me. God took saving knowledge of you if you are one of His people, if you have come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. What's revealed here is that beforehand, God took thought of us. Beforehand, God knew and determined certain things about us, those whom He Foreknew, that's point number one. Number two, we're predestined. Foreknown, predestined. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Predestination is a related concept to foreknowledge. Uh, predestination is the doctrine that teaches that God, before He laid the foundations of the world, chose or elected beforehand all those whom He would save from sin and judgment, not on the basis of anything in them. Unconditional election. Not on the basis of anything in them, but upon the basis of His free grace and sovereign election. Let me say that again. We're Bible people, just expounding Bible words here, okay? Predestination is the doctrine that teaches that God, before He laid the foundations of the world, chose beforehand all those whom He would save from sin and judgment, not on the basis of anything in them, but upon the basis of His free grace and sovereign election. Predestination, as revealed to us in the Bible, is a function of God's amazing love and God's perfect sovereignty. Predestination is a function of His abundant grace and His matchless wisdom. Here is fallen humanity. Here are rebels against God, people who have sinned against God are sinful, regarded as sinful, not only through their discreet actions and words and thoughts, but also in their very being. You understand this, right? You are not just a sinner because of things you've done and said. You are sinful in your core, your very nature. You are sin. That's the problem. It's not just what we say and do. We act out of our nature. It comes out of the heart what defiles a man, Jesus says. We are sinners. The scandal of predestination is not that God chooses some and not others. The scandal is that He chooses anybody at all, that we're not all damned, that we're not all consigned to the everlasting hell that we have all merited simply through living and breathing and through the actions that we have committed. We are sinful in our nature, and what God reveals is that He has in abundant grace and in perfect sovereignty cast His love on certain ones who He would call out of the world and draw to Himself and make His own predestined and elect people. 
Predestination is a doctrine presented to us in the Scriptures for two reasons chiefly. Almost never in relation to how we think about evangelism, by the way, though it's a great comfort to those who evangelize knowing that God will have His people. The typical reason, the typical way in which New Testament authors, even Old Testament authors, introduce the doctrine of predestination, the idea that God, before the world was ever made, before time began in some sense, that He elected and chose for Himself those who would be His elect people, that He would save them for Himself. The reason that's introduced to us is for two reasons in the Scriptures. First of all, to exalt the sovereignty of God in all things, including salvation. God's not sovereign in salvation. He's sovereign in nothing. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, uh, once said, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. God is sovereign. Salvation from beginning to end is all the work of a sovereign God. It's given to exalt the sovereignty of God. God's purpose of election will stand. God will accomplish His will of decree. It's presented to us also, very often actually, to magnify the love of God toward His people to encourage Christians. Most often when Paul or another New Testament writer wants to remind us of what God has done in eternity past on our behalf, it is to magnify our sense of the love of God, to enlarge our view, expand our view of what God has done on behalf of those who are His people. Predestination tells us loudly and clearly that God, first of all, is sovereign over all. It levels all human autonomy and reminds us that salvation is of the Lord. It is a function of Him working out His purpose of election and His sovereign choice to fulfill His good purposes. But the doctrine of predestination is also given to tell us who are His people, to remind us about the amazing love of God. A love that began in eternity past. Think about that. I think that is actually a self-contradictory statement. I don't know for sure. A love that began in eternity past. That's to say a love that had no beginning. See what I'm saying? Well, what, what time, date, hour did God begin to love those who are His elect people? He didn't really. There wasn't a time. It, love is endemic to who God is, particularly His love for His people. It's an attribute of God, and that love has always been set, apparently, from eternity past on those who are His elect people, which means, brothers and sisters, God never started loving you. It didn't have any origin at some point. He has always loved you, which is important for us to know because the confidence that He will never stop loving me is in part bound up in the fact that He never began loving me. There was never a time where His love for His people originated. There was not an hour where He, well, okay, now I will love them. I didn't, but now I do. That's, That's not how God works. He's immutable in all of His attributes. God is love, we're told, and that love is expressed in different ways, in some ways toward all of His creatures, but toward His elect people in a very special way. What I'm saying is God's love for you, you here who have turned from your sins, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who are among God's elect people, God's love for you has, in a sense, always been there. It had no origin or beginning. And it's presented to us in the Scriptures, the fact that that love had no beginning, that it was there in eternity past, that God predestined and elected to salvation all those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's given to encourage you with the depths and the riches of the love of God. So just listen to how Paul talks about this in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, 
He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. You see, Paul considers this a function and impulse of the love of God. In, in love, let me tell you what God did for your poor soul. Let me tell you how we've been blessed in the Beloved. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons before I was ever born. Before Rick and Pam ever came together and had thoughts of having kids one day. Uh, Before America was ever founded. Uh, Before uh, uh, Moses ascended to Mount Sinai. Before Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Before Adam and Eve were ever given the breath of life within them. Before the Lord laid the foundations of the world. God was thinking of me. Of setting His love upon me of adopting me as his child. Paul's telling us that is true for all of us who are the Lord's people. If you've come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, if you've been united to Christ, what's true of you, brother, sister, is that before the world was ever made, before the foundations of this earth were ever laid, God loved you. In a sense, he's always loved you. And at the time, he made you his own. And that's where we go next. Point number three. We're foreknown, predestined, number three, these People also to the third chain in that golden chain of salvation called, called. Those whom he predestined, verse 30, he also called. Predestination speaks to something that happened before we were ever born, before we ever had a name that our parents gave us. In fact, before the human race was ever made, if you can even comprehend that. But now, Paul wishes to tell us that the process of salvation was initiated by predestination. That is to say, by God's sovereign love and election in eternity past. In other words, God's foreknowledge of us and His predestination of us, it set off a chain reaction. There was fruit that was born from that predestination and that foreknowledge. This initiated something that would happen in the process of time when, in fact, we came into being. Think about this. Uh, Some of us had very checkered backgrounds. We were engaged in, in ignominious duplicity and rebellion against God. All the while, think of this, friends, you were the object of God's saving love. And God was working in the process of time to fulfill His purposes of foreknowledge and election and predestination. Which means, friends, God's love for us is an utterly realistic love. He's not impressed with any delusions of who we are. He knew how it was all going to go. He knew that treacherous deed that you executed and carried out that has been the source of so much shame in your life. He knew you before the world began, and He, in predestination and in love, initiated a process by which, in fact, you would come to know Him, come to turn from your sins, come to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what we call calling. You would be called. All those who were predestined, God eventually called. That is to say, now this this is important, all those who were predestined heard the gospel in time. They had the good news preached to them. They learned in the process of time, perhaps over the course of years, perhaps in a short period of time, perhaps in the context of a sermon like this, perhaps over coffee with a friend who was telling them about Christ, perhaps in reading the book of Romans or something like that. At some point in time, whether it was over the course of some years or whether it was in a punctiliar moment when a presentation of the truth came to them, they heard the gospel. They heard the good news taught to them. And what I mean to say here is that no one is saved apart from the hearing of the gospel. 
We may not entertain the notion that, that well, well, everybody's just predestined. Even if they don't hear the gospel or believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not true. This is a link in the chain. Those whom he predestined, oh, he also called them. The gospel call went forward, and they heard it. But there's more to this word called. It means at the very least they heard the gospel, but it means a good bit more than that. Theologians, for very good reason, have distinguished between two types of calling in the Bible. There is what we might call the universal call and the particular call, okay, or the, 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 the gospel call and the effectual call or something like that. They use different terms to describe it. The call of the gospel is to go out to all the nations, to everyone under heaven. Now, one of the things we're tasked to do as the church is to preach the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit wherever we find people, wherever we can get the good news to them. So we seek to publish this news in every place. And if we've got to climb the steeps and cross the waves, onward our Lord command is, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. We've got to tell them this news. But you know this, right? Not everyone who hears that gospel call, which is, believe upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you will have your sins forgiven. Put your faith in His life and death and resurrection on your behalf that you might be saved. If you turn from your sin and believe, you even can be saved. Not everyone who hears that good news, that gospel, believes it. Many, in fact, reject it. Many in Jesus' day rejected it. The general call isn't enough to secure the salvation of sinners. The general call does not exactly achieve salvation for everyone who comes under that general call. No, the Scriptures also speak, though, about what we might call the effectual call. The effectual call. The the tulip thing, it's irresistible grace, but effectual call is a way better word. Effectual call. It is that call of God through preaching, whether in a sermon or when you're doing devotions with your little son or daughter, when you're talking to your sister-in-law on the phone, or when you gave a gospel tract to somebody, somehow the gospel call got to them, and the effectual call is the work of God, and God alone achieve in our place for us. It is the work of God in sovereignly drawing us, opening our eyes, our ears, our hearts to receive the gospel message and to believe it. The effectual call is God giving us faith to believe the gospel. So what's our job, church? Uh, what am I doing now? I hope to preach the gospel this morning, right? Some here who believe it, some who don't, some who one day will believe it. I hope not, but maybe some who never will. What do we pray for? What do we pray for? We pray for God to use preaching, to use the gospel call, and to effectually draw out sinners to himself. Jesus says in John 6, verse 44, 45, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Lord must do a work. The Lord must do a work. Salvation is of God. We preach the good news to everybody. God must do a work of drawing particular ones out to believe, to know, to embrace. He must woo us. He must have us. He must do a work of drawing us to Himself. And that is what is conveyed in this word called in Romans chapter 8. Those who be predestined in the process of time, they heard the gospel in some form or fashion, and God did the work by His Spirit of giving new birth and new life and the gift of faith, and He drew them effectually, called them effectually to Himself to believe the gospel. This is what we call the effectual call of God by the Holy Spirit. Last week, if you were with us at the conclusion of the service, we called an audible, and we sang the hymn, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. Have you ever noticed the doctrine of effectual call in that song, How Sweet and Awful is the Place? Twas the same love that spread the feast, 
that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste, perished in our sin. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? Thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. You see, God was doing something. God is a, the, the, the spirit of that song is I recognize God in his electing love and in his effectual call drew me. He made me hear. He made me believe. He supplied what was needed in order for me at the altar call to get up from my chair and walk down and pray the prayer. Or, or quietly in my room with tears reading Romans chapter 8 to believe that there is the love of God for sinners and that I can have salvation in Jesus Christ. It was God over the course of years, I don't know exactly when, but in that process of time, I was moved, I was made to hear His voice and to believe the gospel. I hope you know this, Christian. You're here, you're a believer, you have turned from your sins, you're following Christ, you put your faith and trust in Jesus' sacrifice for you. You know this, right? There was more going on in your conversion than your decision. You know that, right? It's just like, well, one day it made sense to me, and so I got up, I believed. Yeah, that's true. It was a volitional action that I did believe. I did see myself as a broken sinner. And whatever the setting was for you, I don't know. You, 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 you came to Christ, cried out to Him, asked Him to forgive you your sins, and you believed the gospel, and you embraced the truth. It is, of course, possible, even understandable, after one's conversion, to think it was all me. I, I believe. I mean, of course, Jesus died in my place, but I, I believed it was what, what I did. But, of course, upon further review, you recognize wasn't there more happening there? Was it God doing something? I think back upon your conversion. Think back about whether it was a process of time or a particular moment. Can you see now? Don't you sense God was drawing me? God was wooing me. God was giving the gift of faith and repentance to me. Charles Spurgeon exhorted his congregation in such a way in 1865. Listen to what Spurgeon says here, great preacher in London in the 19th century. Let me refresh your memories with your calling. You do this now. Think about when God called you. Again, I don't care if it was a day or if it was a process of years when you came to faith. Think about your calling. Let me refresh your memories with your calling. He says, was there not a day, the mementos of which you fondly cherish? Like the memories, you cherish the memories of it. When you were called from death into life, Fly back now to the day and the hour, if you can, and if not, light upon the season thereabouts. Now, that's a good British way of saying, maybe it was a process of time for you. Maybe it wasn't a day. Light upon then the season thereabouts, if that's you. Light upon the season thereabouts when the great transaction took place in which you were made Christ forever by the voluntary surrender of yourself to Him. In looking back, does it not strike you that your calling must have been of divine origin? How gracious that calling must have been since it came to you from God, came to you irresistibly, and came to you with such personal demonstration. What grace was here? What was there in you to suggest a motive why God should call you? You know what he's saying? 
What was there in you? Suggest a motive in God why He should call you. Should not this calling of ours evoke our most intense gratitude, our most earnest love? Oh, if He had not called you, where would you have been today? Who am I? What should I have been if the Lord in mercy had not stopped me in my mad career? This was a kind and gracious call when we consider what we might have been. Some of you could so easily tell what you might have been had the Lord not arrested you and saved you. I could tell you where I would be. In this life, I would be in the depths of ruin untold. And in eternity, I would be in hell forever if I was allowed to continue in my mad career, my, my sinful way. And Spirit said, don't you see, God was, God was doing something. He was calling you. He did something. He arrested you. He found you. He had you. He drew you to Himself and stopped you. He gave you faith and repentance. He called you. And it has been such an encouragement to me these past couple of weeks to reflect upon what God was doing when He called me. Of course you think, you come to faith, you think, I decided to follow Jesus. You did decide to follow Jesus. But it is so clear to me now, looking back in review, that God was accomplishing His will, His purpose in drawing me to Himself. Point number four, justified. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined. Those who He predestined, He also called. Number four, those who He called, He also justified. Now, this is the grand issue. Predestination and calling don't address the root problem. Predestination and calling don't make us saved. The problem is you're a wicked sinner. That's a problem. That's why all this is necessary. Things going on in the councils of the Trinity and eternity path. The problem is you're a wicked sinner and God is impossibly holy. And your sin, my friend, offends His holiness. Your sin invites His just wrath. God is just. It's one of His attributes. He's perfectly holy. And God must be true to Himself. He must be true to His justice. He can't court sin. He will not smile on unrighteousness. He must deal with your sinfulness. A lot of people really don't understand this. We have no concept of God's holiness. They talk about God as if they're counting on some sort of sentimental feeling in God to sort of cover over their sins. You're like, hey, forget about it. I'm sure you meant well. You understand what the issue is and why the Bible is given and why Jesus shed His own blood? The problem is we're wretched sinners, rebels against God, and God's justice has been offended. God is more holy than the most mature Christian in this room can possibly comprehend. God's holiness has been violated by our sin. That is the fundamental problem that the Bible speaks into, and the gospel in particular. It is that we are sinners, and God is perfect. It is that God is holy, and we are not, and some things got to give. Our problem, the problem of every person in this room, either at one point in your life in the past, before you came to faith, or right now for some of you, because you haven't come to faith, 
is that God has a just charge against you. You stand under the righteous wrath of God because of your violations of His holy law, because of your sinfulness. Again, that is not just your discreet actions and thoughts and words, but what you are in your heart. Because of your sin, you stand to be the object of His holy and just and perfect wrath. Your sin is a big problem. This is, this is man's problem outside of Christ. So what do we need? Chasm between God and me. My sin has created the chasm. His holiness demands penalty and justice for my sins. We need what the Bible calls justification. Justification is a forensic term. That is to say, it's a legal term. It envisions the courtroom. Track on the justification. Think of a judge, attorneys, charges, sentences. Envisions a courtroom. And at the heart of justification is pardon. Here's the charge. Here's the record. Here's the case against us. And we need the case thrown out of court, as it were. We need the case wiped away. We need to be pardoned. We need to be forgiven. We need to be absolved of our wrongdoing, and we need to be counted righteous. As far as that court, the halls of God's justice are concerned. But how is it that we can come by pardon? And a legal declaration that we're not guilty, but we're actually righteous. We're absolved of our wrongdoing, because in ourselves, we are not decidedly so. We are awash in guilt. We're awash in sin. Friends, the situation is this. You are the murderer on the stand, and your fingerprints are all over the scene of the crime, and the lab results are in. It's your DNA. Your, Your blood is found there, and the murder weapon is in a bag on a table in the courtroom for all the video cameras to see, and your initials are engraved in the weapon, and they got video footage of you doing the deed. That's the situation we're in. So what's, what's the hope? You did it. You did the crime. They have all the evidence against you. And the penalty of the law is to be exacted upon your offense and your wrongdoing. What, what hope can you have? You can't go undo what's happened. You can't go back in time. It's impossible. And undo the action. You cannot hope in the sentimentality of the judge. He's not going to wink at your sin, that would be to violate his own nature. His perfect justice, his perfect holiness requires a penalty. There is nothing admirable about God winking at sin or in some sentimentality passing over the offenses against holiness and righteousness. That is the most abominable and despicable kind of sentimentality. That's goo. That's fluff. That's nothing to be admired or worshiped. One of the greatest things about the Christian faith is that all wrongs in the world will be righted because God is holy. His justice demands it. And that justice, the exacting of that punishment for sins and wrongdoing, can only be exacted in one of two places. What we need, friends, our only hope, is for someone, somehow, to take our place, someone who can satisfy the demands of justice 
for us. Enter Christ. Christ, who pays our debt. All fines accrued to our account, He pays them. Christ, who suffers the penalty of the law in our place. The wrath of God is what is to fall on you. Jesus says, I will take it in their place. I'll satisfy justice. Bring the penalty to me. The penalty must be exacted in the place of sins. And so Jesus will take the penalty. Well, how is it that He can do that? Because of a great transfer. The Bible teaches us that it is possible for the Lord to take our sins from us and to put them on a substitute. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. My record's imputed to Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we may become the righteousness of God, that we might go free, that we might be pardoned, that all the just charges that were against me can be absorbed in Jesus such that God may be, Romans 3, just and the justifier of him who has faith in Christ. God has devised a way. Who could have thought of it? God has devised a way whereby he could be true and faithful to his justice and still be the justifier of sinners, justifiers of the wicked, Romans 4, 5. He is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Because in the death of His Son, who is a substitute for all of His elect people, God exacts the demands of justice. He executes the demands of His holiness. It's the violations of His law. He is just. And while being just, He's also the justifier of those wicked sinners who have faith in Jesus Christ as their substitute. They are declared righteous. They are declared parted. I have no more charges against them. The demands of the law have been satisfied. There's a beautiful hymn that we don't sing here. And we don't sing it here, I'm 100% to blame. We need to sing it here. I was reminded of this hymn this week, and I thought, what a failure as a pastor. You've not introduced this song to your church. It's John Newton's best hymn, which is not Amazing Grace by a long shot. Okay, the best hymn John Newton ever wrote was the hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. You know that song, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder? The tune we sing when it was, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. I suppose there's other tunes out there. Listen to this line. Let us wonder grace and justice. Join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. This is happening. Justice has a charge against you. Justice is the prosecuting attorney. He has a righteous case against you. Justice sees grace pointing to mercy's store. You might think of Jesus standing up as a defense attorney and pointing to his hands. No, 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 no. And it's like justice says, I have no further questions. I drop all charges. I see, I see now. This one is covered in the mercy and blood of Jesus Christ. Justice smiles. It's not offended anymore. Justice smiles and says, no further questions, Your Honor. I, I, I move that this man, this woman go free. 
The demands of justice are satisfied in their case. Pardoned, forgiven, declared righteous as far as this courtroom is concerned. For all those who are predestined, they are called. For all those who are called, they are justified. Fifth and finally, and we'll soon be done. Those who be predestined, he called. Those who be called, he justified. Those who be justified, these he also glorified. This is a reference to what God will do for his elect people in eternity. They will be glorified with Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, given resurrected bodies, permitted to walk in the glory of that land where sin and death will be no more. What will that even be like? I'll never sin again. Think of your senses unimpeded by sin. And that's like with the body you got now. Resurrected body, whatever that will be like and look like. And, and no more sin in glory land. No more sin in paradise with the Lamb. But you'll notice this. Those of me justified, you glorified. For most people, there's a lot of time between the justification and the glorification. As best I could tell, and I'm not infallible, I think I was justified when I was 10. That's a moment in time. I think I was justified when I was 10. A while back. So what's going on between the justification and the glorification? This text isn't really concerned with it. So this text doesn't elaborate on that period of time. What is rather emphasized is simply the certainty, the golden chain that cannot break, this further link in the chain, the certainty that the chain will not be broken. Those whom he predestined, he will call. And those whom he called, he is also justified. And those whom he justified, he will. Every one of those whom the Lord has justified. You hear you're a justified sinner. You've had your sins forgiven through Jesus Christ. You will be glorified. They justified, O oh, blessed thought, and sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. It's, it's so blessed to know. I mean, what would have to happen for you not to be glorified? God would have to be a liar. He'd have, to, he'd have to deny himself. It's better than that. The demands of justice require that you be glorified. Your, your ticket into heaven is secured by the justice of God. It's extraordinary. Of course, we know from other scriptures that what is happening in those intervening years between our justification and glorification is that sovereign God who predestined us at the beginning, who called us, who justified us, He is keeping us. He is completing the work that He began in us. He is holding us fast. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, effectually called, justified, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. He is saving us to the uttermost. And that will include our progressive sanctification. It includes our warfare with sin, which will ultimately have a successful outcome. It includes our efforts, yes, our sweat, our toil, our labor to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and it includes God's sovereign initiatives to keep us along the way unto the end. For known, predestined, called, justified, glorified. I want to bring this to application, and then I'll close in prayer. Where does this leave us? What I'm telling you here is if you're a Christian, or today you come to faith in Christ, you become a Christian. If you're a Christian, these five things are true of you. God has accomplished these things for you. Oh, so where does that leave us? Well, where does Paul go with this? 
So where does he arrive in light of these things? The answer is total confidence and assurance that we are right with God and safe in His love. Paul wants, the Roman Christians he's writing, he wants them to be persuaded, to know, to be certain, to be assured that nothing else needs to be done in their case. That they are right with God, charges have been dropped, been declared righteous, that you're safe in His love and that your soul is secure. How do I know that? Where does Paul go? Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? What's the idea? The one who was against us, namely God, is now for us. And if He's for me, well, who could be against me? It means, brother, sister, God is on your side. God is on your team. God is for you, not against you. It's on Jesus, thank you, we sing. Your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Oh, Jesus, thank you. God's for me. God's, he's not against me. That chasm that was created through my sin put me under the just the wrath of God, an object of His justice. Now through justice exacted upon Christ in my place, God is for me. His wrath propitiated. And if God is for me, who? Who can be against me? Who? I mean, I mean critic? Uh, someone from your past? Satan? Your own sins? The assumption is that if God is for us, it crowds out all other judgments about us. No one could be against us if God is for us. Just sort of crowds everything else out. He who did not spare his own son, he who was pleased to crush his son on our account, what's he going to do? Forget about us? Tuck us away in the attic or throw us in the trash? He who purchased our redemption at so great a price? No, he will graciously give us all things. And that's not Cadillacs and speedboats and a cancer-free body in this life. The all things is eternal life with the Lamb. It's salvation. It's justification, sanctification, glorification. Far better than a Mercedes. Verse 33, who should bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. What's the point there? What's the assumption? Your case has already been decided in the highest court. You can't appeal the ruling. It's not like, well, there's a tentative judgment in a lower court that's been made on your account. Well, we'll see how it goes down the road. And, and if your parole goes well and you're on good behavior. No, this judgment can't be appealed. Mike, I got this right, right? The Supreme Court's the highest court. You can't appeal that judgment, right? I don't know, maybe. I don't know how it works. But in the halls of God's justice, it cannot be appealed. In the highest court in heaven... I have been declared right with God. The charges are dropped. 
It's God who justifies. Who's going to bring a charge against you? Christian, no one can charge you. No one can charge you. Satan can't charge you with anything. No one can bring a charge against God's life. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through what your Savior has done for you, you're righteous. You've been counted right with God. This just came into my head. So now I've got to think, should I say it? Uh, when I was at Clemson, I was accused of a crime. I don't know why I'm telling you this. <laughs> Seventh floor of Tillman Library. It's late, two o'clock at night, finals week. Me and my friend Ross, my roommate, we go up to the seventh floor and we, we think, hey, wouldn't it be great to get up on the roof of the library, see the campus? So we go to the door that leads up the, the stairs. So that, and the door's locked. And, and as our consciences should have been telling us, abort this foolish mission, we remove a tile in the ceiling. <laughs> and I throw Ross over, Ross pulls me up, and we climb up the stairs to the top of the library and, oh, oh, cool. Oh, oh. Uh, uh. We come down, and there is an officer waiting for us. And um, they took our IDs down, and we thought, they don't really care. The kids probably do this all the time. Well, then, then we got the letter, and we had to appear before the court. And what they charged us with was breaking an entry and destruction of property. They said that we broke something while we were, that was, I don't know, broke something, I don't know. And um, I think it was all probably a farce, just to intimidate some college kids. We had to appear before the Clemson Tribunal. And they said, this, this is what you've done. And they said, um, you have two options. Uh, you can either go to court uh, or you can enroll in what we call our restorative justice program. <laughs> and restorative justice was penance. It was purgatory. It was do these things for the university over the course of months and we'll take it off your permanent record. And I was a, I was a good Christian homeschool kid I thought like my whole life is ruined. I thought I want to be a pastor and now I've done this. I can never be a pastor now. And I was like, I will do whatever you ask me to do. Well, how many of us with this info record that stands against if the Lord said, okay, well, that's fine. You've done these. Here, here's how you'll get out of this. 10,000 years in purgatory. Fine, Lord. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, right? Our justification is far better than that. He doesn't enroll us in a restorative justice program. He doesn't send us for time in purgatory. No, Jesus absorbs justice for us, and the charges are thrown out on behalf of what our Lord has done. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who's going to condemn you, Christian? Jesus died in your place. He rose from the dead. And what is Jesus doing now? Do you know what Jesus is doing now? I think a lot of people are confused about this. They think Jesus died, He rose from the dead, and He's just kind of waiting now. No, what Jesus is doing is He's interceding for us at the right hand of God. Arise, my soul, arise. We sing that hymn. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming blood is precious blood to plead. He's, he's praying for us. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. Five bleeding wounds. One, two, three, four, five. Right? 
Five bleeding wounds he bears, receives on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. What's Jesus doing? Well, to make it simple for you, he looks upon us and he says, Father, that one's mine. See my, see my wounds for him, for her. He's interceding for us. So who's going to condemn us? If Christ is our advocate, the one who shed his own blood is our defender. He is the one pleading justice. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress Persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. This is the issue. I am sure. I am sure. And this is what God was gracious to bring to me in answer to my prayer. We can be sure. Sure. I am sure. That neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I'm sure of this. My friend, the Scriptures want to move you to a place of certainty. It is not virtuous or honoring to God to constantly be wondering, does He love me? Could His blood really cover my sins? Will the charges against me prevail? The charges of conscience, the charges of Satan, the charges of the world, the charges that my own sins bring to me. Will they just be too great? No, no one can bring a charge against God's elect. Five and a half years ago, I was in uh, London. It actually was the day after election day here in the States. That was an interesting experience. Uh, Donald Trump was just like the president. If you were in the States, that was surprising, not impossible, but surprising, uh, given polls and things like that. I sense the heart rate in the room is going up now that I'm talking about politics. I'm not going to talk about politics, okay? Just chill out. <laughs> we were in London, and um, for the Brits, that was incomprehensible. They thought this was all like, when did think Donald Trump was a serious candidate? How could that happen, right? So it was very interesting to be there on that Wednesday morning. We didn't care at all about politics that morning. Because we were looking for Martin Lloyd-Jones' church, okay? I say we. Zach was with me, former member of this church. And so we're there in London. We wanted to find the church where the great 20th century preacher, the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, had preached and thought, man, if we could just see the inside of that building. And it's a Wednesday. Uh, we, are, we get turned around. Lloyd-Jones pastored Westminster Chapel. That's not Westminster Abbey where the kings and queens are crowned, a far more august building down the road from Westminster Chapel. A few blocks over is Westminster Chapel, but we, we were having trouble finding it. Uh, I was quite broke back then and um, did not have data on my phone, so I couldn't pull out the GPS. I had to figure it out. So we walked into a hardware store in London, and there were two sort of grizzled-looking older men there, and I said, hey, I'm a bit turned around. I'm looking for Westminster Chapel. Could you point me in the right direction? They could tell my American accent. They said, are you going there to say your prayers? Because, of course, they're all like, they can't imagine that Donald Trump is our president. So, so I said, no, there's a preacher there of interest to us. Could, could you please help me? And they said, well, if you just go here, here, make a left, and go down to the thing. 
We arrived there. There is Westminster Chapel, not an especially pretty building, but, but this was the site of God's great work through the doctor and all the good that he had done. I thought, we've got to get inside. So we ring the door, and we do it for like five minutes. You know, and, and, and our, our hopes are just, our countenances are sinking as we realize no one is coming to the door. Literally, we start walking away. And at the last minute, this, this Chinese kid, probably 19, 20 years old, peeks his head out. He says, can I help you? The church is closed today. And I, I, said, I said, please, good sir, we have come all the way from America <laughs> just to see your church. And I know you are, and that was kind of true, okay? I said, can we, can we please come? We, we, uh, we, we profited from the ministry of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was your pastor. I said, oh, sure, come on in. And so he let us in. And so we walk in the sanctuary where the doctor preached 30-some years Westminster Chapel. And we're thinking, we're these pathetic kids from Pembroke Pines, Florida, and here we are in the doctor's church. And we're just sort of overawed by the whole experience. And the, the, the student who's there, he said, would you like to stand in the pulpit? <laughs> would I like to stand in the pulpit? <laughs> so I stand in the pulpit. And I'm thinking, the, the doctor stood here. And do you know that experience you have when, when you have information that someone else really wants, uh, and you kind of have a sort of power over them in that moment? All right, this kid had his hook, line, and sinker. He had all the power over us in this moment, and, and he wielded it. He was enjoying himself. And so he said, he said, would you like to see the doctor's vestry? That would be like his office or his study. And we're just thinking, I can't believe this happened. We're going to see the doctor's vestry. And so now it's like a coat closet. It's a little room. It's not even, it's like the size of maybe this closet if you've seen it. We walk in, and it's exactly as it was when he was there. All the furniture is original. And I said, can I sit at his desk? He said, be my guest. And I sit there at the desk. Maybe he wrote his sermons here. This is where he wrote the commentary on Romans. That massive 14, 15 volume thing. Ten plus years he was in the book of Romans. And this was the ultimate, he says, he says, would you like to see the doctor's pulpit Bible? And, and I said, sir, I would love that. And so he gets up on a, on, it's in the vestry, he gets up on a stool, and on the top of the shelf of this cupboard, he pulls down this massive thing, massive thing. And it literally, I mean, it's like something you would see from Lord of the Rings, like he blows it, and like a puff of smoke flies out. <laughs> like no one's looked at it in years. And so, and so we're looking at the pulpit Bible, I'm looking, I'm, I'm thumbing through the pages. And he's telling me stuff about Lloyd Jones about the pages. There's one page that stuck out. Like you know, you know, if you have a folded over page, you might go to that page in particular. One page stuck out. I turned into the New Testament, and it fell into Romans eight. And there was a piece of tape running down the middle of it. And if you know about Lloyd Jones, he spent like three years in Romans eight. And that Sunday by Sunday. He took the people of God to this glorious chapter to assure them that nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ. And over time, it, it must have ripped off. He was there so often that to tape it back together. I think he knew that we as Christians, we need this. We need to be assured that all the charges have been dropped, that our sins are truly forgiven. God really does love us. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, thank you for all your initiatives of grace and love to call out a people to yourself. Who of us can fathom or comprehend your wisdom in the great plan of salvation? Who of us could comprehend the great cost of sending your only begotten Son, even crushing your Son, all for the sake of needy sinners who have no other hope? We pray that for all of us who are in Christ, you would so work in us. Many of us are prone to doubt. We're so scared. We're so sinful. We're so thick in the head. Please come and assure us that you have forgiven us. There are no charges that remain against your elect. There is none left to condemn because you have justified us, counted us right in the highest court that there is. And, and please, Father, come in these moments now and assure anyone here outside of Christ that all of this can be theirs if they believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, turning from their sins, trusting in the same sacrifice that has saved us, that this very moment they can be given this same sentence, justified, and they can be sure, certain today, they will one day be glorified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Seal these things upon our hearts. Give us certainty, confidence, assurance in these things. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.